The Lord be with you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, Lord Jesus, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We meet this morning still awash in the celebration of Easter, the singular most important event of the year for Christians. We mark time differently as Christians, and to risk boasting, I think Anglicans mark time as well as anyone and better than most. The world seeks in various ways to impose itself upon us with values and ways of being human that are ill-fitting with the ways humans are designed by their creator. Canadian culture marks holidays related to famous persons and political events, but our liturgical year helps us orient our lives with the higher purposes of God in his ordering of the world, the redemption of the world through Christ, and the perfecting work of the Holy Spirit in our daily and corporate lives. This higher ordering of our calendars flows through and orders the life of the church. Not only do we mark time differently, but we mark our identities differently. In recent sermons, you have likely noticed that we have been focusing on how we understand our identities as Christians. A few weeks ago, I spoke with you about Paul's sense of identity how he had come to view his previous life and all of those impeccable qualifications that he had as trash. We recall that reading from Philippians where Paul writes, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He describes here and elsewhere how Jesus gives him a new identity, one which replaces his old one. That reading from Philippians is written as Paul looks back on his conversion. One of today's readings comes from the book of Acts, in which Luke is describing the events leading up to Paul's conversion. In it, we have an additional indication of how we should understand our identity as Christians. We will find here ideas that build then upon that earlier lesson. Acts was written by St. Luke, and Luke was not one of the apostles. Luke knew Paul, was a very close associate of Paul, and relied heavily on Paul, in writing both the Gospel of Acts and Luke. Excuse me, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. (laughs) Our reading today comes from Acts 9. To begin with, Luke describes Paul's activities as follows. Recalling that at this point in the story, Paul's name was Saul, but you all know that, right? Paul is Saul at this point. Luke writes that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. 
He also acquired letters from the Jewish religious leaders authorizing him to go into the synagogues so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now let's fill in the picture a bit more here with regard to the writing of this passage and what the first readers and hearers of this would have thought. Luke wrote Acts after all of these events had occurred. This means conservatively that Luke wrote Acts at the earliest in the 60s or 70s in the first century, some 30 or 40 years after Christ had ascended. In that time, we know that the church had begun to spread broadly, that Paul and the other apostles had undertaken missionary journeys, that the church based in Jerusalem had already begun to develop a leadership structure and networks. A generation of work had already passed in building up the church. The church was up and running and open for business. Now imagine if you were a Christian then and had been a part of the church for decades and a copy of Acts was for the first time read in your congregation and you heard those words. Now let's, let's read them again. Paul was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He acquired letters from the religious leaders authorizing him to go and find those belonging to the way and take them bound to Jerusalem. Ah, as someone who in the church, you know already that Paul eventually becomes a Christian. You would have likely known the general features of his story. You would nod here and say, ah, yes, this was the time when Paul was persecuting the church. This was when he was against the church. Okay, so far. Continuing, the passage reads, now listen carefully. Now, continuing, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Did you hear the startling thing? Jesus reframed everything Paul had been doing. Not only that, but Jesus also completely reframes how we think about ourselves as church. Jesus does not do what we would expect and accuse Saul of persecuting the church. He accuses Saul of persecuting him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In these few words, we have a powerful statement made about the church and its nature and identity. Jesus is naming the church as himself. And here is the main thing which builds upon what we have been preaching about earlier. Our identity comes from Christ through the church, who is Christ in this sense. Now, as we continue and finish this reading this morning from our story in Acts, we will see more confirmation of the teachings about this coexistence of Christ and the church. Let's go on. The passage continues when Paul is told by Jesus, Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Paul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and neither ate nor drank. Jesus leaves Paul blind for now and for a purpose for which we do not yet know. Why did Jesus leave him blind? How does Jesus eventually choose to heal Saul? Christ could have chosen any number of means. Jesus himself could have appeared to him again. All options are certainly available to Christ at this point. Why does he blind him and how does Jesus restore Paul physically and spiritually? Let's continue. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to Saul, lay hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. Ananias was unremarkably hesitant because he knew how dangerous Saul was. But after Jesus reassures him, he, went and he goes and finds Saul. And Ananias, laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Jesus sends a leader of the church to heal Paul. And after being healed, he is baptized. He is immediately brought into the church and immediately begins to preach about Jesus in the very synagogues where he had previously been dragging members of the church out. Do you see how much of this passage revolves around church? Now, there are several important takeaways that we get from this passage with regard to how we understand our identity as Christians. First, in various ways, our preaching and teaching over the last months has sought to show how our truest and deepest identity as Christians comes not from the world, not from our families, not from our heritage. Jason and I brag about our Dutch heritage, but we need to be careful with that. Not from our biology or our accomplishments or our sense of self, but our truest identity comes from Christ. Here we learn how closely, how intimately that identity comes from Christ through the church. And this is the primary lesson. In a powerful statement which captures and amplifies the gravitas of the identification of Jesus with the church, John Calvin in his Institutes writes, quote, So powerful is participation in the church that it keeps us in Dei Societate, in the society of God. In all senses of that large word, the society of God, the church reflects that largeness. 
We are a people establishing a new way of life in the midst of other societies. Just let that, the implications of that sink in. Now, there are many practical lessons that flow from this. For one, the church then is the means through which we participate in that life of the Trinity and become that new society. Our identity, which originates solely in Christ, is provided for us. It is not something we possess, but it's something that is constantly given to us by grace from God through the church. It is constantly being formed in us in the church. To live our lives to the fullest, church is not then optional. There's an image sometimes that, that I learned growing up occasionally, the images of a fire burning and, then the, and the coals. Maybe some of you know this image. If any of you have gone camping, you certainly know this, maybe know this as well that if you have a raging fire in a, in a huge body of coals, that they will stay hot together for a very long time. You can go to bed and come up the next morning and start a new fire from the coals. However, if you take one small piece of those coals and remove it from the rest, it becomes cold very quickly. That's a kind of an image that sometimes that this idea has been, has been taught. We need to stay close to the fire. We need to stay close to our community, close to our church, in order to stay hot. Also, the church is then is not then just a part of our lives, but frames everything about our lives. God chose Abraham to be a people set aside, a people who would model to the world what it really means to be human, to be humane, to be holy, to be an example to the nations so that the world might learn and be blessed through them. The church is the inheritor of that mission. We are a distinct society. We are the society of God on earth. Our gospel reading today helpfully closes with a particular direction to church practices that we undertake as Christians, ones which are vital to these lessons about Christ and the church. In the latter part of our passage from John, the risen Jesus directly addresses Peter. We know that earlier, Peter had denied Jesus three times, recall, in the very same gospel, just a few chapters before. Here, Jesus quite intentionally asks Peter three times if he loves him, corresponding to those denials. Peter says yes each time, more deeply cut to his heart as he realizes what Jesus is doing. Each time, Jesus is confirming him with the call to feed my sheep. Did you hear what I said there? Jesus confirmed Peter. This passage is a confirmation. We practice confirmation. Our family just passed through confirmation. Confirmation is a separate and specific sacrament for Anglicans. And in light of our discussion of the passage in Acts, I hope you can begin to put together how significant confirmation is and should be. Indeed, not only that confirmation sacrament that we all certainly commit ourselves but also all those moments of confirmation that are sprinkled throughout the life of the church. 
At baptisms, we are called to confirm our faith and our commitment to the church, to Christ. When others are confirmed, we also reconfirm. In the yearly blessing of oils, we are called to reconfirm, and at other times. Our confirmation and confirmations are not innocuous gestures. They are not just human metaphors. They are sacramental acts in which Jesus himself continues to call us to a more substantive allegiance. Now, there may be some of us here who are hesitant about confirmation in particular or in theory. Consider that Christ himself is calling you to a deeper level of faith. Take serious those small moments of confirmation which Christ calls you in the church, in your daily lives, where you seek to love God and love your neighbor in faith, hope, and love in the power of the Holy Spirit. And be encouraged. On our side, on our instincts to keep our lives to ourselves, we sometimes shrink from these challenges, from those commitments which appear to be burdensome demands. Before we take these steps, they feel heavy, but Jesus himself carries it for us. He himself tells us that once we take it up, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come to Christ here in the society of God and find relief and joy and peace and confirmation and relief from the burdens you think you need to bear on your own. Amen.